I got to tell you, I am so thankful to be here with you guys today. I love this time together. I look forward to it each and every week. Uh, as I reflect upon a lot of things, it, it gets me to, you know, just thinking there are so many that were among us that no longer are among us. And a lot of times we have a tendency to, to blame that on COVID. Uh, I, I just say that I think COVID had just really revealed the strength of the church. And I'm just thankful for your participation and your engagement each and every week. And I look forward to the process that I have to go through every week of, of reading and praying and studying and praying and writing and, and praying and preparing and praying and uh, getting to this point today. And so it's no surprise that this morning we find ourselves in Romans. <laughs> Amen. Come on, you got to really love Romans as much as I love Romans. But we get a new chapter today. Now we're not going to cover the whole chapter today, but we get to start a new chapter today. So Romans chapter 7. As you're finding your place, let me just kind of again point out the fact that sometimes uh, chapter divisions can be helpful. But there are times when they break the text in such a way that it, that it appears to separate the unity of the text. And so I, I think that's the reality of Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8. Uh, those two chapters should be read as a unit rather than independent sections. Looking at each chapter in and of itself kind of creates an imbalance. But if you take those two chapters together, then we see the, the two sides or the two points of the believer's experience. One, in, in chapter 7, we're going to see our struggle with sin. And then in chapter 8, we're going to discover how we can have victory over that struggle. Back in chapter 6, uh, Paul explained that Christ has delivered us from sin. And so when he died, according to verse number 11 in chapter 6, when he died, we also died to sin. But while we are alive in our bodies, we must continue to deal with this sin nature and its attempts to control our thoughts and our actions. So there's still an ongoing struggle that we have to engage in. So in chapter 6, Paul describes this tension between our old and new nature. He uses the analogy of slavery. You know, slavery to sin versus our slavery to God. In chapter 7, he begins this, uh, begins this section by arguing the same point. Uh, this time using the analogy of marriage uh, to illustrate how believers are to relate to the law. So there's a great similarity and a beautiful harmony between chapter 6 and chapter 7. In chapter 6, we were slave to sin. In chapter 7, we were slaves to the law. In chapter 6, we've been freed from sin. In chapter 7, we're freed from the law. So he begins this section by stating an accepted truth. Look at verse number 1. He says, so do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as 
He lives. And so Paul starts with a general truth. He starts with an accepted truth. And that truth is any law, whether it's Roman law, Greek law, or even biblical law, any law has jurisdiction over a person in so much as that person is alive. So the law dominates and rules over a person as long as they live. The law applies only to the living. It has no bearing whatsoever upon the dead. A dead man is freed from the law. The law has no jurisdiction. The law has no power over a dead person. So Paul's going to take this truth and then he's going to marry that truth with an analogy of marriage law. And so look at, look at the analogy, verses 2 and 3. He says, For if the woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is freed from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Okay, so real quick, a side note here. Let me try to be as clear as I can. This text is addressing the doctrine of our struggle with sin. It's addressing the doctrine of sanctification. This text, verses 2 and 3, has absolutely nothing to do with the doctrine of divorce. Hear me here. Paul isn't just inserting a random thought, hey, maybe I need to give him a teaching on marriage real quick. No, he's using marriage as an analogy to to support what he's going to say about our relationship to the law. I say that because I want you to be careful. If you want to build a doctrine, and you should build a doctrine, if you want to build a doctrine on the issue of marriage and divorce, then use the text that's found in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because here, Paul is not addressing the doctrine of marriage and divorce. He's using marriage to illustrate the point that he just made in verse number 1. And the illustration is a simple one, but it has profound application. When a man and a woman get married, they are united for life. Marriage is a physical union. And it can only be broken by a physical cause. That is why we exchange vows with until death do us part. So in in chapter 6, Paul uses the illustration of a master and a servant to explain how believers are to submit themselves unto God. Here in chapter 7, he's going to use the illustration of husband and wife to show that the, the believer now has a new relationship in respect to the law. Paul is calling attention to the fact that marriage law is binding in so much as both partners are living. So just as the death of a spouse brings a complete change in a marital relationship, so too salvation brings a complete change in our spiritual relationship. 
With that being said, believers are no longer married to the law. Believers are now married to Jesus Christ. That is why He is referred to as the Bridegroom. We're no longer married to the law. We're married to the Lord. So the underlying emphasis of the book of Romans is that salvation produces a total transformation in the life of the believer. So picking up in in verse number 4. He says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. So like I said, the law has no jurisdiction, has no power, has no rule, has no authority. The law has no dominion over the believer. Because the believer is dead. They've died. And so the law is a dead issue to the believer because the believer is now dead to the law. Think about what that means. What does it mean to be dead to the law? To be dead to the law means that the believer is no longer under the law and its accusing finger. The believer is no longer under the guilt and the shame. No longer under the condemnation or the punishment. No, the believer is dead to the law by, in, and through the body of Jesus Christ crucified at Calvary. And so the believer is put to death in Christ. So when someone believes in Jesus, God takes that person's faith and He counts them as having died in Christ. That is, God God counts the death of Jesus as the death of the believer. God, God, God looks at the believer and considers that believer, that person, to have been in Christ when Christ died at Calvary. And so why does God do this? He does it because Jesus died on our behalf. Jesus took upon Himself the penalty and the punishment that's brought about by the law. Jesus bore our sins in His own body upon the tree. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 24 says, And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. So the believer, being dead in Christ, the believer is now freed from the law. They are free from its demands. Freed from its guilt. Freed from its punishment. And am I the only one that that makes me a little bit excited and extremely thankful for that reality? Jesus' suffering satisfied God's judgment. So His death makes us acceptable unto God. His death delivers us from the penalty of the law. Therefore, the believer is now set free from that law. Now, in verses 4-6, through Paul is going to explain the believer's relationship to the law. So a couple of things for us to consider. First of all, we need to understand that we have died to the law. 
So that first relationship is that we are now dead to the law. Looking back at verse number 4. Follow along again. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So what is he saying? He's saying that when we were unsaved or prior to us submitting and surrendering our lives to the Lord, uh, the language that Paul uses is when we were in the flesh, you see that in verse number 5, when we were in the flesh, we were under the authority of God's law. Being under the authority of God's law, we were also condemned by that law. But when we trust in Jesus, we are united with Him. Therefore, we've died to the law just as we have died to the flesh. That's back in Romans chapter 6, verses 1-10. through 10. So, so, real quick, two quick facts about the law, right? So our new relationship with the law is, number one, we've died to the law. But let me give you two quick facts about the law before I get to the second relationship we have with the law. So the two quick facts are, number one, is the law does not die or has not died. We died. The law didn't die. We died. The law doesn't die because God's law still rules over humanity. No, the text says we died to the law. It means the law no longer has dominion over us. But that doesn't mean because we're dead to the law that we can become lawless. That doesn't mean that because we're dead to the law, we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, without respect or thought or consideration to what God would have us do. No, that is not what it's saying at all. It means that we are now united with Christ. We're sharing in His life. That's why we've been called to walk in the newness of life. So in the old life of sin, we, we brought forth or we produced the fruit that, that leads unto death. It's the fruit of death. But in this new life, this new life of grace, we are to bring forth or to bear fruit unto God. So the motivation of our lives as believers is not rooted in the law. No, our motivation comes from the grace of God through our union with Jesus Christ, His Son. So the two facts about the law. The law didn't die. We died. And fact number two is that the law is alive. The law is active even today. I want you to understand that the law not only points out our sin, the law actually arouses feelings or stirs the emotions within a person to do the forbidden. Look at the text. Verse 5, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law, we're at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. What that saying is that the law, what the law prohibits or what the law forbids, 
actually creates within us an interest in the forbidden. It creates within a person an attraction to do the forbidden. It creates within humanity the excitement for the forbidden. There is something that is within us that makes us want to do the very things that we are told not to do. Now, rebellion is a natural instinct in humanity. That's why James writes in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. It's within them. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Then in chapter 4, James says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And so there's something that is within us our fallen nature that, that makes us want to do the very things that we are forbidden to do. And so the result of striving against the law, the results of refusing to obey God's law, is that the person bears fruit of sin. They bear fruit of sin. When, when we violate the law, it's sin. Sin leads to death. The just payment or punishment of sin is death. That's why we wrapped up in chapter 6 and, and Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and so, okay, so before getting to our second relation that we have with the law, it's important to see back in verse number 4 that we actually see the glorious purpose for the believer's death to the law. Verse 4 not only tells us that we've died to the law, it also tells us why we've died to the law. Or what's the result or what's the point of us dying to the law? Look at verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So there's our relation. We're dead to the law. But then he says, so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. So here's the two things here. The believer dies to the law so that they can be united with Christ. Notice that it's the picture of marriage is still being used here. It says, so that you might be joined to another. So before coming, before submitting and surrendering our lives unto Jesus, that individual is married and joined to the law, which means that they are under the authority or the rule of the law. But once we submit and surrender our lives to the Savior, well, we're no longer under the authority of the law. We are now under the rule and the authority of the Savior. 
So the believer dies to the law so that they can be joined to someone else, to our Savior. And then the second reason is that they die to the law so that they, they can bear fruit for God. See, before dying to the law, we bore fruit to sin, to death. But now having died to the law, married to Christ, we can now bear fruit to God. I love how Paul captures this essence in his other letters, and like in Ephesians. His letter to the, to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 10. He says, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them, so that we would bear the fruit of those good works to the glory of God. Paul also writes to the church in Galatia. And in Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, he says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Man, isn't that like awesome? So, so Christ gave up His life for us paid and fulfilled the punishment that sin deserves. And so if we put our faith and trust in the Savior, then the only proper response to that is for us to die to ourselves and to live holy and fully for the glory of God. And that's what Paul captures. So, okay, quick recap. We've died to the law, right? So we're dead to the law, right? We died to the law so that we can be united to Christ, and so that we can bear fruit to God. Now, the second relation that we have with the law. Not only are we dead from the law, but we've also been delivered from the law. We have been delivered from the law. Look at verse number 6. Verse 6 says, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not oldness of the letter. This is the logical conclusion. The law cannot exercise authority over a dead person. Death means deliverance. So we have been delivered from the law so that we might serve the Savior. If if you go back in Romans, in Romans chapter 6, In verses 10 and 11, Paul says it this way, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Which means, Jesus lives right now, Jesus lives in an unbroken devotion and service unto God. Therefore, so are we. We are to live in an unbroken devotion and service to God. As Paul pointed out in verse number 1, the law has jurisdiction over a person 
only as long as that person is alive. But in Christ, we've been crucified. We're dead. We're no longer alive. We've been released from the the penalty that the law demands. We've been released from that because now we're under a new rule, a new master. Now we're under the rule and the authority of our Savior. Because we as believers have died in Christ, it's when Jesus paid that debt for us at Calvary. Because we've died in Christ, we have been released from the penalty of God's law. So what Scripture says in Galatians chapter 3. In verse number 13 it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So as believers, we are dead to the law as far as its condemnation and its demands are concerned. This doesn't mean, hear me, this doesn't mean that we are free to do the things that the law forbids. No, what it means is that we're now set free to serve in this newness of life rather than in the oldness of the letter. Our, our service to God is motivated by love, not out of fear. And so now it's a service of freedom, not one of bondage. Because we now live in the newness of the Spirit, then we can love and we can serve God with a joyful heart. And then we know that to obey His Word, so we can't ignore His Word, we got to know His Word, and we got to obey His Word. So now we know that to obey His Word is to fulfill His will. And when we fulfill the will of God, we bring glory to His name. And as I'm working through that reality and that part of this text, it it reminds me of the catechisms. Some of you are familiar with catechisms. Some of you aren't. If you've heard that term or you're somewhat familiar with it, raise your hand. Anyone? Cool. All over the place. For those of you that didn't raise your hand, let me help you out. Catechism is a summary of the, the principles of the Christian faith. There's summary statements that are captured in a question and answer format. And when you study these catechisms, it helps to give instruction and insight as to what we believe and how we're to live our lives. Somewhere along the line in church history, we got away from the teaching of catechism. And, 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 and it, it wasn't a good move in the church we would probably do well to re-embrace the teaching and the instruction through the catechisms. So much so, there are different types of catechisms that exist out there. I was reading through one. It's uh, Spurgeon's catechism. And I believe he was 23 years old when he rewrote the catechisms for his own church. He delivered a message and then spent the next few years teaching through those catechisms. We've recently started to introduce catechisms in our own home. And so if you're interested, I will just give this plug. I get no proceeds from this plug. It's just a great resource for you. 
we have a book that's called Teaching Truth, Training Hearts. This book is published by Founders Press. It's an awesome book. And inside this book, they have different examples, different catechisms that you can study. We begin to introduce this uh, to Canaan. So we're walking through the catechisms with their boy. Are you good? You want to come up and help me? All right, come here. He's going to make his way up here. This is, this is what we do in our own life, right? So every morning before I come to the office or anything, we have our, we have our time together. It's me, Canaan, and his mom. And so we're there in our room, and I have the Bible open. And so we start off with the Bible reading uh, for that day. Uh, on Monday, I read the text for our sword training, getting prepared for what he's going to study in sword training that happens before the service. And then on uh, Tuesday through Thursday, I read a passage of Scripture, and we're currently reading through Exodus, one of his favorite accounts and stuff. So we're reading through those chapter at a time. When we're done reading the Bible, then uh, Casey leads us through catechism. She'll ask the question, provide the answer, and then we go back and forth, repeating that. And then each day, from Tuesday through Thursday, I will also read scripture that supports the question and answer for that day. And then on Friday, if you're interested, we don't do that in the morning because on Fridays we have community day here at the church with the classical conversation and we get all that instruction during that time. But, but I love that time. And then, so we do Bible reading, we do catechism, and then after that we do uh, the hymn of the month, usually two or three weeks. Casey tells us the story behind the hymn and then she plays it. Canaan works on singing it. I'm not allowed to sing. Is that right? Yes, your voice is out of tune. Yes. All right. All right, hold this for me. He is so true. So, so this is what we're working through right now. Now, you have to hold that up and speak into it. Just like that. You want me to hold it for you? Okay. So we ask questions like, who made you? God made me. Awesome. What else did God make? God made all things. Okay, Canaan, why did God make you and all things? For his own glory. Well, how can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Amen. Amen. That's it. So, I'm telling you, this type of instruction is crucial for parents to embrace and to give to their children. And so, I just wanted to use that as an example to help us to understand that The Christian life is a life of submission and service. The Christian life is not one of independence and rebellion. So the the point of the message today, we have died to the law so that we might be married to Him who was raised from the dead. Not only that, we've been delivered from the law so that we would faithfully submit to the Savior and wholeheartedly serve our Lord. That's the point. May we all embrace that. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for today. Thank You so much for Your grace, for Your love, for Your forgiveness. So Father, there are two types of people in this room. There are those that have received that grace, love, and forgiveness in their lives. 
They submitted and surrendered unto you, and yet they're in this life, and we're still struggling. We're still fighting against our, our desire to do the things that you have forbidden us to do. So God, help us. God, may your spirit make known unto us our sins so that we can confess that and repent from it and pursue something new and fresh for your name and for your glory. Father, there are others in this room that are still producing their fruit to sin because they've yet to submit and surrender their lives unto you. Oh God, if it be your will, May your spirit bring about salvation in their lives. May you be glorified in what you see from us. May we make decisions in this moment that totally lift up your name. Help us, Father. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.